Good morning. This morning I'm going to be preaching from Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. So if you'd like to get ahead, you can go ahead and turn there. Um, and as Paul says in Romans 1, 15, right before our passage today, I am eager to proclaim the gospel to you and to the Lord's church. And it's a special privilege that I have this morning of doing that. Um, and I'm thankful. But before we get into this passage, there's a term that I want us to understand. And that term is righteousness. Because I think when we think of righteousness, or at least when I think of righteousness, and many that I know think of righteousness, we think of holiness. We think of goodness. If we say, that's a righteous man, we mean to say, that's a holy man. If we say, that's a righteous judgment, say, that's a holy judgment. But that's not where righteousness comes from. All those things are involved, but righteousness means something different. And there's an illustration from ancient culture where this word actually comes from, and it's, it's when a, a woman would go to the market. When she would go to a merchant, and she would want to buy some grain. And what she would do is she would tell the merchant the amount of grain that she was wanting to purchase, and that merchant would pull out scales. And on one side of the scales, he would put the grain, just a little bit, not an exact measurement. And on the other side, he would put a metal weight. It was the measurement that the woman wanted to buy from the merchant. And until that scale was settled, more or less grain would be put on the other side. And when those scales were balanced, they were known as righteous scales. They were known as just scales, proper balance and equity between the sides of the scales. And if you've been in the Lord's church for any amount of time, you see the weight of the task we have this morning. Because we're not talking about grain. We're not talking about a market. We're talking about how the Lord God balances the scales of redemptive history. How the unchanging God will call the guilty righteous. It's as if that merchant saw that one side of the scale was totally imbalanced and called it righteous. And that's not what the Lord has done. And we're going to explore that this morning. We're going to understand how the Lord himself balanced the scales of redemptive history in the Lord Jesus Christ and in the gospel of God. And so, as we get into our passage, there's something we have to understand about Paul. And we have to understand his culture, because at the beginning of our passage he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. And I think today, the society we live in, not true shame, but many of us and the generations before us liked disappointing our parents or grandparents because truth started with us. We're the ones who have it right, and they are the ones out of touch. They're the ones who don't get it. But that's not the kind of culture Paul was in. Paul was in what's often called an honor-shame culture. Where on the one hand, if you had a life followed by many others, followed by blessing, followed by much love and respect for your family, even in Rome, if you had many sons that were strong and fought for the Roman legions, you were honored. And if you had something to say, the people might take you seriously. And on the other hand, if your life was full of suffering, if your life was full of failure, 
she didn't have a strong family to present to the people, much renown to give to them, you were to be shamed. And you were treated as an infection in the society. Because Rome prided themselves so much on their honor that they even prided themselves on killing their own children. If it took presenting themselves with more honor. They rejoiced in any kind of deformity, any kind of disablement, even if you were born female. If it took the child's death for more honor to be given to the man, morality wasn't the issue. The issue was honor, because this is how seriously they took this. And Paul finds himself in the middle of that culture. And in 2 Corinthians 11, you can turn there if you'd like, he gives what might be the most detailed explanation of his ministry and his suffering in ministry. In 2 Corinthians 11, Starting in verse 21, he's comparing himself to the supposed apostles that the Corinthian church have trusted because they had much honor to bring to the church. And so he doesn't see himself as needing to compare himself, needing to prove himself as better than these apostles, but he does so in order to prove a point. So in verse 21, to my shame, I must say that we have been weak by comparison, that is to the false apostles. But in whatever respect anyone else is daring, I speak in foolishness, I'm just as daring myself. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's seed? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as if insane. In other words, of course they're not. I more so. In far more labors. In far more imprisonments. In beatings without number. In frequent danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, from robbers, from my countrymen, from the Gentiles, in the city, in the desolate places, on the sea, among false brothers. I have been in labor and hardship in many sleepless nights, in starvation and thirst, often hungry, in cold, and without enough clothing. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches." Who is weak without my being weak? Does that sound like a man with much honor to give to the culture? Does that sound like a man concerned with presenting himself to his culture? This theme, another scripture if you'd like to turn there, 2 Timothy 4, runs throughout Paul's ministry to the very end. And if you know Paul's life, shortly after he was saved and called as an apostle, he went to Jerusalem where there were thousands of Christians and there was a council held to see what the church ought to do with Paul and Barnabas. And eventually they send them out. They approve them for this ministry amongst the Gentiles. And so he has the backing of Peter, James, and John, the church in Jerusalem, And the churches, for example, in Thessalonica, they were in love with Paul. They loved him. They quickly received the gospel. But in his last letter, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 10, he gives an overview of his friendships since the Jerusalem council. For Demas having loved this present age, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. 
skipping down to verse 14. Alexander the coppersmith showed me much harm. The Lord will award him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously, vigorously opposed our words. And verse 16, at my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. So within 35 years of ministry, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, had been deserted by all but seemingly three that stood with him. To his own admission, in the inspired text of Scripture, it was Paul and seemingly Paul alone. Because they had given themselves to the present age, they had become in love with honor. Maybe if I add to the gospel of Christ, they'll accept me. Maybe if I put a little caveat on the gospel of Christ, the culture will have something good to say about me. Maybe since the Judaizers love the law of Moses, I could say salvation is by Christ alone. But you have to keep the law to keep your salvation. And many went the way of error, and many fell into false gospels, as many deserted Paul by the end of his life. I could ask the question, does that sound familiar to today? Where many want to add to the gospel. They don't call it that. They say the gospel's not good enough for rec racial reconciliation. The power of the Spirit's not good enough to help men be reconciled to one another. The Word isn't enough. We have to pursue the ways of the world. We have to do what the world's doing. Clearly there's power in that. And it's all error. And it's all an affront to the gospel of God. So much so they call it the ministry of reconciliation. Brothers and sisters, the ministry of reconciliation is between man and God. It's between you and Almighty God. Don't listen to men who don't understand that. And so that brings us to ask the question, why today? Just like Paul's day, why would we be ashamed of the gospel? Because maybe the gospel is concerned with us, right? The Lord loves us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. God so loved the world. It seems as if at least part of the gospel is concerning us. And to a culture that is in love with itself and a people who are so self-determined to make sure their voice, their vote, their rights, their families, their history, their likes and dislikes are made known to everybody around them, doesn't it seem like the gospel might be something good to them if it's about them? Why would we be ashamed of the gospel? And if that's a hard question to answer, we have to have a deeper understanding of the gospel. And we have to understand how the Lord has shared the gospel in the word of God. And so that brings us to our text. There are four things I want us to see. There are many other things in these two verses. But the four things I want us to focus on are God, salvation, righteousness, and faith. So we'll see the God of the gospel. Salvation provided by the gospel. The righteousness in the gospel. And the faith of the gospel. So, if you're not already, would you turn to Romans 1, verse 16.
for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. He says that he's not ashamed. And he says that it's the power of God, this gospel he's preaching. Who is God? Do you know who he is? Has the Spirit opened your eyes to see him? Do you know him in his word? Do you know the God of the word? Do you know him as he's revealed himself? Or as you imagine. If anyone in here finds themselves saying, well, I'm not sure if I believe in God at all. You do. You know God is. From the beginning of the world and the beginning of creation, his invisible attributes have been made known through his creation. He's clearly evident all around you. And you have a conscience. You're convicted of your sin, though you might not admit it. You hate the way that you live. You hate some of the things that you do. And you wish you could do better. That's not a biological, a sociological, or a psychological problem. That is between you and God in heaven because he has created you to be obedient to him and you are not. Do not say that God needs to stoop to your level and present some kind of evidence to you so that you would worship him. If he did, would you? If he did stoop down and say, here you go. Look at me, here's God. Please believe in me. Would he be worthy of your worship? I don't think so. And to us who believe, whom the power of God has worked, the only way that we can know God is in Scripture and by Scripture. We can't conjure up who God is on our own. Do you know the God of the Bible? He's independent. He's completely apart from his creation. He needs nothing to sustain him. He's immutable. He doesn't change. Even from before time, he was the same. He's eternal. From beginning to the end, from eternity past to eternity future, and he is infinite, outside of eternity. He transcends time. He's omnipresent and immense. He's present everywhere and he is fully present. He's omnipotent, all-powerful. And he is omniscient. He knows you. He knows everything. And he needs to learn nothing. And he alone is perfect. He is uniquely perfect in himself. And among those what we call perfections of God, he is love, he is long-suffering, faithful, good, gracious, merciful, holy. He is spirit. He is invisible. No man has ever seen God, but the Son has revealed him. And he is righteous. He is just. There is equity in God. And the sum of all of this, the weight of all of these perfections or attributes, is the very glory of God. 
So brother, friend, do you feel the weight of God this morning? Do you feel his ever-present eyes seeing you? Do you believe in the God of the Bible? If he isn't one of those perfections, he is not God, because that is who Scripture says God is. So is the God you believe anything less? Is anything lacking in God? Because that is who God is. And particularly today, Paul says, the gospel is the power of God. The power of the all-powerful. Can we conceive of any such power? The power that created the world by his word, who sustains it all in his son, who acts within it by his spirit, who grew weary of dealing with sinners and flooded the earth, and was able just the same to preserve eight men who called a people out of one man and protected that nation. And he also judged that nation through the many nations around them as his sovereign providence guided them. And in the end, he will bring all creation, as we heard last week, to a roaring end by the same word which he created, his son, Jesus Christ, to usher in a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells and punish the unrighteous in the lake of fire forever. Paul says, this powerful God, his own power, his own right hand, as we read in the Psalms, that in the gospel, that the gospel itself is the power of God. He says, for salvation. This power of God is directed in a particular fashion. It's directed toward the salvation of sinners. And you don't have to turn here, but we, we want to ask the question, why? Why is God concerned with using his power to save Titus 1, verse 1 and 2. For the faith of God's elect and the full knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness and the hope of eternal life, here it is, which the God who cannot lie promised from all eternity. And in 2 Timothy 1, 9. Saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Why is God concerned with salvation? Jesus says over and over in the Gospel of John, I have come to receive all that the Father has given to me. So from these three things, we can understand that sometime before the foundations of the world, God the Father concerned himself with salvation and a promise to his Son. That out of love, the Father promised the Son that he would present to him a redeemed people a saved people. 
and within God's decree in order to sum up all things in Christ. He predestined, he called, justified, sanctified, and glorified that people to present to Christ. And as Paul says, he's working all things for their good, for the good of the elect, not for the elect, but for his son. Because it was on the basis of a loving promise that salvation was given. And so from eternity past, we move into when God created, when he acted on his decree. And he created the universe, he created the world, and he created man. And he placed man in the Garden of Eden. And man was to be the representative ruler of creation, have dominion over creation. He was to represent God as he obeyed God, as he was created in his image, to multiply and fill the earth with that image, so that the many, having dominion over creation, would represent their God in obedience to him. But shortly after man was created, man sinned, and he disobeyed God because of the lusts of the flesh. And man fell into sin. And in Adam, as Paul will say later in Romans, all die. All of us are in Adam. We've all been born of man and of woman. And I, studying this week, I don't think that we really understand the gravity of the fall sometimes. We know the theology of the fall. We know that it happened. We believe that it happened. But do we really know how deep-rooted sin is in our heart? In chapter 1 of Romans... Verse 20 says, For since the creation the world of the world, his invisible attributes, both his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen. Verse 21, For even though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish heart was darkened. Verse 25, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And to give an overview of the effect of this fall, verse 28, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to an unfit mind to do the things which are not proper, having been filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, Greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, violent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the righteous requirement of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Chapter 2, verse 3, But do you presume this, O man, who passes judgment on those who practice such things and does the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? I think we see that in our culture. We see that around us. I'm sure we've seen it in our own hearts. I don't have to deal with my sin. I don't have to apologize to anyone. I don't have to ask God for forgiveness. I don't have to live a repentant life because if nobody knows about it, who cares? If nobody sees my sin, who cares? Much more than that, if I feel right about doing sinful deeds, who cares? And they presume as we have presumed in our past, 
that we and they might escape the judgment of God. The fall is all-pervasive. The fall is so deep-rooted in your heart and your desires that if you are not in Christ, you are a slave to it. You can do nothing apart from your own sinful desires. And they run you. And at the end of, or at the beginning of chapter 2, Paul spoke of this righteous requirement of God. And I think it's obvious from reading about the state of man, reading about where we are in our sin, that if there is an eternal promise in Christ to present a people to the Son, there is need of man's salvation because we cannot be presented like this. So what is this righteous requirement of God? How does God balance the scales for man? In verse 17 of our passage, chapter 1, verse 17, Paul says, for in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. This verse changed the course of church history. God used it to change the course of church history. But it was the verse that, if not converted, began the conversion of Martin Luther. And he was so particular in studying this passage that his whole conversion rested upon what the preposition of means. The righteousness of God. Because to me, when I read that, at first glance, it seems like an attribute, righteousness of God. It might seem like the work of God, righteousness of God. But if you would turn to Romans 3, there's a little more to the righteousness of God than just an attribute or a work. In 3.21, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God, there it is, has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, listen to the prepositions, through faith in Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In fact, in the Greek, preposition of does mean of. But the way that of is being used is not just to communicate an attribute or a work of God. The way the word of is being used is to communicate the righteousness from God. The righteousness of God given from God. So here we see that salvation is in the gospel. And salvation is concerned with righteousness. And that righteousness that comes from God is revealed in the gospel. And in chapter 3, he said, through faith in Jesus Christ. That this righteousness from God pertains to Jesus Christ. Truly God and truly man. Because we have this problem from Adam. Yahweh made a promise to Eve that her seed would crush the head of the serpent. He didn't make the promise to Adam. Because as Paul gets into later in Romans, in Adam all die, 
In Adam, all are under a curse. In Adam, all have an inherent sin nature. But this Jesus was not born of Adam. He was born of woman. Conceived by the Holy Spirit. Born of the Virgin Mary. He was not born with a sinful heart as we are. Truly God and truly man. Finally, the seed that would crush this head of the serpent came to earth. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God took on flesh 2,000 years ago, actually a point in time, not just in a book, but that a man who walked the earth was also God walking the earth? And that in his life, what's known as his active obedience, he kept the law of God. He did what the law of God required. And in his passive obedience, theologians call it, he died on behalf of all those who couldn't. Because the law doesn't just require you live obediently. The law requires if you're disobedient, you must be punished. The importance of Christ's life, which I think is often overlooked, is that if he just died for your sin, you would be innocent, you would be forgiven, but that's not enough. The law must be kept. He died for your sin. Forgiveness was given because of the cross of Christ, but he lived a righteous life, so that his righteousness, the very righteousness of God, the righteousness from God, would be credited to your account. That you're forgiven, that your sins are paid for, the punishment of the law, but that the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in you who believe in Christ. Because of his righteousness. That's why in Romans 8, 4, he says, The righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So this gospel is not just concerned with the life of Christ, the death of Christ, but it's also concerned with the resurrection of Christ. In Romans chapter 6, verse 8, Paul writes, If we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. If you eat of the tree, you will surely die. In Christ... He has defeated death. And he's not only defeated it for him, but for all who would believe in him. And back in chapter 4, we see verse 25, he who was delivered over on account of our transgressions, that is, he who was crucified, was raised on account of our justification. <coughs> justification didn't just happen on the cross. The resurrection was essential to that. And lastly, Hebrews 9, verse 11, explains that even his ascension was necessary. Because in the Old Covenant, the priest would slaughter the bull on the altar and bring the blood into the Holy of Holies so that forgiveness of sins would be offered to the people. And we have Christ dies on the cross, crucified, Blood shed on the altar. And he ascends to heaven. And the writer of Hebrews says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is to say, not of this creation. 
and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy places once for all, listen to this, having obtained eternal redemption. And elsewhere it says he sat down at the right hand of God. No priest was ever to sit down in the Holy of Holies. They were to bring the blood in and get out. Because God is too holy. But Christ, not bringing the blood of goats, but bringing his own blood on account of his elect, brings it to the Father before the throne. The Father is pleased with his sacrifice. He sits down at the right hand of God, and the righteousness from God is able to be given to all those who would believe in Christ. This gospel is concerned with the person and work of Jesus Christ. It mustn't be added to. It can't be changed. People changing the gospel is why no one stood with Paul. This gospel exclusively is the power of God for salvation. It is not a power of God. It isn't an option. If anyone desire to be reconciled to their God, they must come through the blood of Jesus Christ. And in Romans chapter 3, we could ask the question, why? Why does God do this? He said, well, he eternally promised to the Son. But there's more. In verse 24 of chapter 3, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. We've understood the gospel. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This is the important part. For a demonstration of his righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be the just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. Did you catch that? The reason for the gospel of God is bound up in his perfections. He desires to make himself known. Why would we be ashamed of the gospel today? Why, in a culture that loves itself and would love God to just love them back, would we be ashamed of the gospel? If we really understand the gospel, we understand that the gospel is not for us. It is offered to us. It is concerned with God's elect, eternally promised in the Son. We benefit from it. God loves His people. But the primary purpose of the gospel is to reveal the righteousness of God. To demonstrate His perfections. Earlier in chapter 1, he said, Since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen making himself known. And even what some would call the heart of tension in the gospel. How can God be sovereign and damn sinners? Well, Paul in chapter 9 deals with that. And we won't get into the depths of that here. But in verse 22, Paul writes... Therefore, God says, what if God, wanting to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath having been prepared for destruction? God, again, making his perfections known. And what's beautiful about that for the elect, if you're wondering, 
well, how am I supposed to rejoice if God is so self-concerned? How am I supposed to rejoice if God is just doing all this for himself? You can rejoice because in God doing all things for himself, he has appointed you to be one of his elect. He has appointed you to bring glory to him in him saving you. That is a marvelous thing, church, that God would choose you, that God would take your sin, deal with it in Christ, and be pleased to demonstrate his power and his righteousness through you. That is a marvelous opportunity. And so how? How do we obtain this righteousness from God? We've seen the God of the Bible. We've seen the salvation provided by the God of the Bible, why it's necessary. We've seen that righteousness comes from God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So how do sinners attain it? Verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith. ESV says, for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And that phrase, from faith for faith, might be a little confusing. For example, verse 17, the first word, for, Greek preposition, it's not the same in between faith and faith. Preposition is actually to, from faith to faith, like from one to the other, from beginning to end, from here to there. In that quotation from Habakkuk, like we read this morning, what Paul quotes begins with a conjunction, but the righteous shall live by faith. That is to say, Paul is bringing the whole context of Habakkuk to the front to prove his point. So the righteousness of God is revealed, the gospel of God, and the righteousness from God revealed from faith to faith. And before we explain that, what is faith? What does Paul mean when he says faith? If you would turn to Hebrews chapter 11. We sang a song by faith this morning. First three verses were in the introduction. And the writer of Hebrews is somewhat making the same argument as Paul, saying this has always been the way of the people of God. In verse 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That is to say, you understand the promises of God. You believe them. You see them, and you say they are true. You're convicted of the truth of them. But is that all? Is that what faith is? See, many evangelists go around and say, if you just believe this gospel, if you just say, yes, the gospel is true, yes, Jesus was a person, yes, he was born of a virgin, I believe all that. Does that mean you have faith? Hebrews 11 goes on, verse 13, after explaining certain men and women in Scripture We'll skip the first phrase. It says, without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance. Other translations in the past used to say embraced them. That these men and women embraced the promises. That is to say, they knew them, they believed they were true, and they loved them and adopted them as their own hope. They didn't just know them, but their heart was enthralled by them. They loved the promises of God, so much so that this third element of faith, having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, back to the beginning of the verse, all these died in faith. They knew the promises. Their mind was informed. They loved the promises. Their heart was informed. And they lived their lives to the end. 
based on the promises. That is to say, their will was motivated by God. And some might say, well, that's works righteousness. If faith is not just belief, and faith includes what you do, then you're saying we have to work for our salvation. That's not what I'm saying at all. Because, think about this, if faith is the gift of God to man, if faith comes from God by grace, God is not going to short you the faith necessary to persevere to the end. God is not going to ask you to begin in faith and accomplish your salvation through the works of the law. You don't get justified and get thrown out on your own. Christ said, I lose not one of them. And that's crucial. And that goes right along with what Paul says in Romans 1, because he's quoting Habakkuk. And you can go ahead and turn to Habakkuk 2. And in order to understand Habakkuk, it's kind of hard to find. <laughs> um, you have to understand Genesis. You have to understand why Habakkuk is saying the things that he's saying. Some have called Habakkuk an 11th hour prophet, meaning that he saw the Babylonian Empire beginning to take over the world. He saw Egypt destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. And he saw right in that line of travel, right when the Babylonians were coming to take over the Middle East, Jerusalem was in its path. And Habakkuk understood this is the judgment of God on our people. But what's interesting about Habakkuk is two things. One, he doesn't call the Babylonians the Babylonians. He calls them the Chaldeans. And in chapter 2, verse 4, he makes a judicial statement that the righteous will live by faith. And we see a judicial statement in the Chaldeans in Genesis. When we look at the life of Abram, because if you remember, Abram was called out of the land of Chal the Chaldeans, and he believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. A judicial statement. And so what Habakkuk is doing at the supposed end of Israel, the end of the nation, they're about to be destroyed, he's speaking of it in terms of the beginning of Israel, bringing Abram out from the Chaldeans. We began in the Chaldeans, we began by faith, and we see the Chaldeans coming, that we might be sent back into them, and God requires faith. That's why in chapter 2, after Habakkuk asks, why are you sending a wicked nation to punish a people more righteous than they? God says, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. If you think your righteousness gives me any pleasure on its own, your soul is not right. If you think because of an ethnicity because of some kind of story, some kind of works that you've accomplished, anything of the flesh, even in the very promises of God to the nation, if you think that bringing you into the land grants you righteousness from me, your soul is puffed up. Because the righteous will live by his faith. Just like in Abram. From beginning to end. From Abram, Abraham, the beginning of the nation, to the end of the nation. The requirement is the same. That you have faith in Yahweh. That you believe in me and I will account it to you as righteousness. And that's why it's so crucial for Paul in Romans 1 to bring this text up. Because he says the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. You see the righteousness of God as he grants you faith. And you continue by faith in the righteousness of God. 
from beginning to end, the requirement is the same. You believe on Him, and it's accounted to you as righteousness. In Romans 8, we know this text very well. It says, Those whom He foreknew, He predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brothers. And remember, from faith to faith, from beginning to end, you will continue if your faith is true. Those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. In the mind of Paul, real faith works itself out to the end. You believe in God, and you're accounted righteous. You are justified when you believe in him. And from that justification, done deal, nothing can be added. You move through sanctification as evidence that that justification was true. And it's not your doing. He says you walk according to the Spirit. And so in this grand plan of God to save his elect, you have God making himself known and doing it in such a way that through you, through conforming you to the image of Christ, you will go from faith to faith, from glory to glory. He will not lose you. He will not abandon you. No work of yours will ever be required to please him. But you will continue because the Spirit of God is in you. So I have to ask this morning, has this power of God in the gospel worked itself out in you? Do you have this kind of faith? where you don't just know the promises, you don't just believe them, you don't just love them, you don't just live your life obedient to them, but altogether your mind, your heart, and your will are consumed by the gospel, not as your own work, but as the work of God. Have you seen God do that in you? Because if you have, praise God. Praise God for accomplishing such work. And that's something to rejoice in every day. You go to sleep. You have no control. You go to sleep. And you wake up still a believer. We wake up a lot of times in our life, Lord willing. And every time ought to be a reminder that through the night, God has kept you. So that in the morning, you would rejoice that you live another day in His love and care for you. This is a full salvation. This isn't just spiritual. He has saved your soul from death. He has promised to preserve you to the end, that you would persevere, that if He comes, He will preserve your body that no wrath of God will be inflicted on you in the divine judgment because of the righteousness of Christ. And that when you're presented to Him, you will be glorified, not based on your own merit, but because of the righteousness from God in Jesus Christ. Is this something God has done in you recently? Something you feel God is doing in you now. Something you might want to think about when you go home. Say, I'll pray about it. Go home. Pray about this God that I don't know, but I'm going to talk to him. I'm going to pray. I'm going to think. I'm going to ask around. 2 Corinthians 6, 1 and 2, Paul makes the point, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. If you see this God, you see this salvation, you see this righteousness, you place your faith in Jesus Christ, come today. Don't wait. You're not promised an opportunity to go home and think about it. You're not promised two seconds from now. And I don't stand up here, put on a show just for me. 
I'm not up here screaming about the gospel, waving my hands in the air just to think, wow, he's a good preacher. I'm up here on your behalf so that by God's grace through me you would hear the gospel, that you would respond either from faith to faith, that you would go from one glory to the other, that you'd be reminded of these truths and you'd love them, or that you would see them, maybe for the first time, and that you would come. Do not wait. And if you reject these, you are more accountable now to God. You have more knowledge now of the righteousness of God and the perfect gospel of God, the righteousness from Jesus Christ. Maybe you already knew these things. But if you have, more will be required of you when you stand before him in judgment, and you will have nothing to offer. You are responsible for what you know. So friend, I beg you, come to Christ. And for those of us who believe, I want you to just listen to how this righteous shall live by faith ends in Habakkuk. Remember, he sees the Babylonians coming. He sees the destruction of his people. And in chapter 3, verse 16, this is his response in a prayer, in a song to God. I heard, and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips tingled. Decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble, because I must wait quietly for the day of distress, for the people to arise who will invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no produce on the vines, Though the yield of the olive tree should fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in Yahweh. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Yahweh the Lord is my strength, and he has set my feet like hind's feet, and makes me tread on my high places. That's how you end in faith. You see the judgment of God falling before your eyes. You see the righteousness of God, and you say, even if there be nothing for me in this life, even if all should be taken away from me. Even if the culture says I'm to be ashamed of the gospel. Even if churches in the future desire to add to the gospel. And if they separate from us. May God be true and every man a liar that this faith works itself out and to the end in his people in their heart they will be rejoicing because we exult in Yahweh. And lastly, this is the way Paul ended his ministry. We read 2 Timothy 4 earlier and he's about to be executed. And in 2 Timothy 4, 6, he says, For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing.
brother or sister, if you are in Christ, we have much to look forward to. And that one day we will be awarded with our brother Paul, awarded with Habakkuk, and that crown of righteousness will be placed on our head just so we can throw it back at the feet of the Father. So believe in God. See his salvation. See the righteousness from God. Have faith in his Son. And continue to the end. This is the gospel of God.